Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, getting back after possibly one of the biggest, most hyped uh, weekends in the Premier League calendar, and one which I think, certainly for the neutral, lived up to expectation in terms of drama. Less so, perhaps, in terms of refereeing, but we'll get to all that with the help of my free guest, Joining us from somewhere up north, where he's uh, he's apparently moved to, he's left London to go somewhere near the Manchester Ship Canal, it's Rory K. Smith, and better than him, here in the studio with me, it's the excellent Alison Rudd and the fabulous Henry Winter. Coming up, we'll be debating a little bit of PSG in, uh, in Rory on the back of his excellent column in Monday's game, but obviously we're going to talk Premier League, and we're going to talk the top of the Premier League, and we're going to start at the Emirates. Henry, you're a neutral, right? Mm. Did this live up to your expectations? I mean, as a game, it was fabulous. I mean, just just compelling entertainment in terms of the seesaw element, in terms of some of the individual performances, and Golo Kante particularly, how he finished on the on the losing side was extraordinary. Vardy ran himself to a, uh, a standstill when Simpson stupidly got himself sent off. Vardy was just up there on his own, and there was there was almost a couple of sort of tube stops between him and his midfield and defence because Leicester were defending so deep. Def- you know, Leicester, I mean, Cash was Michael was fantastic. So there were good performances all over the Leicester team, apart from Simpson, who was stupid. And then Arsenal, you know, the sort of the, the, the drama of Walcott coming on and scoring, the drama of obviously Welbeck coming on. You know, had, had not played since April 2015. 45 minutes of under-21s football, hadn't scored a goal in the Premier League for 14 months. And the thing about Welbeck, and I know we're sort of cynical old hacks and we shouldn't be sort of drawn on the sentimental, emotional, human side of it, but Welbeck's an incredibly popular individual. If you've ever met him, you've ever interviewed him, he's just such an interesting character, bright, he would have gone to university... I remember interviewing once when he was at Manchester United and at the time his two brothers, one was at Leeds University and one was at Liverpool University and I said to him, do you ever go and see them? 
and he said he he laughed. He said, "I play for Manchester United. I'm not going to go to Leeds or Liverpool to see my brothers. I'll wait for them to come home." <laughs> you know, he's a really nice character. So there was that human element of feeling uplifted. And you know, this is there's so much debate going on at the moment about the the growing alienation between or disenfranchising of fans and the distance they feel to the millionaire players. And then you just saw what that goal meant to Welbeck and how he went over and celebrated with the fans. So it was a special moment and a special game. All right, we got tons to get through in this game. Henry, you you threw out a whole bunch of topics there. But I want to keep with your theme of Welbeck because it is a really sweet story. But I want to take a step back and look at Wenger's decision to send him on. I was thinking at 1-1, right? He's He chucks on Wal- Wal- Walcott. He chucks on Welbeck. He chucks on all the artillery that he really has. Was that slightly risky at that point? In the sense that if you give up a goal on the break or you somehow make screw this up, you know, with a draw, you if you're Arsenal, you kinda live to fight another day. Or did you did you agree with him that he had to go and win it right then and there? Yeah, I mean they they were down to um ten men at the point he brought him on. Leicester were down to ten men. I mean, I can you imagine what we'd be saying now if he'd played this conservatively, Wenger? We'd be saying well, this is this is a this is a man who doesn't believe in his own destiny, doesn't believe he can craft his own destiny, doesn't believe in, in his team. I, you, I, I don't, you, either, you either grasp the opportunity given to you or you don't. Yeah, I don't necessarily mean playing it conservatively. I, I mean more you know at that point with Lester Down Time and even before that the plan was always gonna be to, to, to counterattack. He just he just decided to really pull out all the stops there at the end and that's one of those Wenger things, but it also struck me that a goal the other way would have really damaged them, whereas you know perhaps this wasn't as pivotal. Now, though, you get the last-minute equaliser. It struck me, though, that, Alison, they had created enough chances before that that they probably should have been up before that. Yeah, they were, they were, it wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction to, to the man being sent off. It, that Arsenal were on the front foot. They, you know, they, they were they're the only team that have gone to the King Power and looked a step above Leicester and they decided to keep it as a sort of two-legged tie if you like and to impose that sense of superiority which sometimes do you Arsenal feel they can were superior do. in the first half to Leicester no no so. no not no no I'm talking about how they felt and it's but about it's about it's about how you it was always about how they approached this game did they defend deep accept that Leicester were the better team or did they try and continue the narrative from the the, the victory they had at the King Power, where they did outclass Leicester, and Leicester were a little bit naive, as though they didn't sort of count it as a real game for some reason. And I think I think that attitude was spot on. They were they they didn't pepper the box, but they were getting crosses in. They were being attacking. They were giving Leicester stuff to think about. Rory, we're not just here to talk about referees, but obviously this was a game of incidents, and there were some big decisions either way. On a broader point, today in in the game we have. Matthew Syed telling us everything that's right and wonderful about the Premier League, and I think he makes some very good points. Maybe with some of the officiating, maybe there's more of an issue. And it struck me a little bit that I appreciate two big games. You give them, and obviously there was an issue in the City Spurs game as well. You give it to Atkinson and Clattenburg. Ah, Henry's reading Syed's piece, but you, you must have read it before, right? You're not just looking at this for the first time right now, Henry. I'm reading it again. Aha. Uh-huh. I felt that neither Clattenburg nor Atkinson had good games, and I kind of felt that they got this one based on reputation rather than quality this season. I think there are other officials who've been better this year. This is just my own my own point. But I yeah, want... I mean, I'm, I'm, do you know what? I'm, I'm really, it sounds really kind of highfalutin and a bit kind of holier than now. I, I dislike referees becoming stories because... It is in, 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 in the, I was at City yesterday, and the decision for the penalty was was clearly wrong. It was not a penalty. He was he was making himself bigger, which is the rule. But 
as far as I could tell, it sort of struck his sort of shoulder at best. But there is an issue. There's no question. Okay, so you don't like talking about referees. No, I, I, I don't like blaming the referees for... Okay. Well, for I'm not suggesting court. blaming the referees. I'm, no, blaming, I'm, I'm suggesting blaming the person who appoints them. It always feels slightly cheap to have it at the referee, but Castorino says in the paper today, and I'm inclined to agree with him, that it's on weekends like this, when you do get controversial decisions, that you think we can't have the lead potentially decided by these sorts of incidents. Right. It highlights the case for some use of technology. I'm, I'm still torn on that a little bit. I, I don't... It's coming, Rory. Object. It's coming. We know it's going to come. It, it, that's, uh, Henry, that's what Tony says, and he's, he's quite right. Um, my, my personal feeling is that, is, and it's just a kind of a gut instinct, it's probably completely wrong, that there being an element of error and doubt in football doesn't necessarily well, damage it as a sport and as a spectacle, but certainly from the other side, you can see on weekends like this where you do have two such crucial games where refereeing decisions that are not correct make such a huge impact. The Jamie Vardy penalty. I was on Twitter, and I saw Stan Collymore and Lee Dixon, totally opposing reactions. I've watched the replay a billion times, certainly a billion times more than Atkinson. And you know what? I kind of feel that it was a penalty, mm. but I wouldn't have had so much of a problem if he hadn't given it. And I don't think seeing it a million times helped me helped me decide. If you believe that a, a player being forced to take evasive action, which is what Vardy would have had to do by, the, um, by uh, Monreal's leg being where it was, if you believe that's a foul, and I believe it's a foul, then it's a penalty. But the pictures aren't going to help you determine that. It's almost like a philosophical issue, isn't it, Henry? I thought it was a straightforward penalty. I mean, just, just so looking at it. Are you disagreeing with Stan Collymore? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it looks, it looks, Stan's brilliant, and I sort of bow to his sort of knowledge of the game. And it's interesting that referees in the papers, sorted papers today, said they thought it was a penalty as well. I thought it was spectacularly naive of uh, Monreal. I mean, Arsenal were just caught out by the pace of it. Koscielny came across and took out Kante. They, they, they were also simmering with disagreement because they thought that Ozil had been found by mm. Wes Morgan. So we're then going to have this debate about technology, and I'm a huge fan of it because it look 21st century media age fans are streaming we've got monitors it's it's going to come in why should the person who is in the middle the one who has to make the decision have least recourse to the technology that everyone else has got you know i don't want policemen to go out there without sort of helmets and body armor you know just you have to give the people the equipment that they need to go and do their job properly so it will help them. What is going to be interesting in that case is that uh, Arsenal could say, OK, we're going to give a penalty for that. Let's take it two phases back and we want a free kick for the foul by Wes Morgan on Mesut Ozil. That is where it becomes yeah. a sort of slight grey area and that's where the debate... But I think we need the debate. We need the trial of video technology just to have a look. And it's one of the things I've been banging on about. Bring video technology into the FA Cup next season. It'd be great for the FA Cup and then we can sort out technology, for instance, like that. Get- permission to do that but um, I think the process is is underway to try to get that it may not be ne- next season in the FA Cup but it'll, it is coming I agree with you I think we, we need trials we do not put the vi- the video coverage to a democratic vote it's it would just then be one other individual deciding whether it was a penalty do you know how they'll do it okay referee in his back pocket has the old um, foam spray shaving foam to sort sort out the line what he'll have in his other pocket he'll have those Google Plex glasses and he will be able to put them on and he'll be able to see it immediately. How do you know this? Because I've talked to the Premier League about it. It's not the Premier League who get to decide No, this. the Premier League want to bring it in. And the Premier League say, look, the technology is out there. Yeah. He's got the Googleplex glasses, yeah. so you can go and just watch that immediately. So he doesn't even have to, to talk to your friend in the, in the truck. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that what you're suggesting is a much better system than, than the man in the truck. 
there are a bunch of issues because... It doesn't have to be a man in the truck. It could be the lady in the van. Let's not be sexist about this. But that raises a whole bunch of issues that we talked about before, including, like, who selects the pictures that Atkinson gets to see with his Google Glass, which some people, and what angles and how quickly and so on. There has to be a protocol for that. But I want to ask about something which is not which is much more of a judgment call in terms of how we referee. Allison, you're the qualified referee. I know that this is what annoyed Ranieri after the game. Is the two red cards to... Two yellow cards. Sorry, the two yellow cards. I'm a qualified referee. I know <laughs> exactly. the difference between red and yellow. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and also you're a woman and therefore less likely to suffer from color blindness the way, the way oh, males do. Good point. I, I, some of us have blue-green deficiency. Is that right? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, um, no, on, on that point, Ranieri's point after the game was, look, tackles flying in everywhere. You could have booked this one. You could have booked that one. You kind of knew that, you know, Simpson's first yellow perhaps a little bit soft. Why couldn't it just be a foul, given the way the other ones had gone in the game? Although, again, at the risk of contradicting Claudio, actually, he did give a lot of cards in that game. So it's not like he was letting everything go. But when so soon afterwards you give a yellow you know that you're going to affect the game and change the game. And, I, and, and it, it, it sending off obviously changed the game. Do you have an issue with that? Is that something Atkinson maybe could have could have handled better? Or is it just Simpson who's kind of a fool and say, look, look you got a soft no, yellow? It's no, not, it's not incumbent on Atkinson to, to worry about affecting the game. So you're um, not part of the spoil it, it the makes, game in a way, In a way, in a way, Simpson makes it easier for the referee because, because the fouls are so close together. It sort of uh, crystallises it in, in a sense that, yes, yes, this is, this is my job. As the official, you commit a foul, you get a yellow card. The yellow card is a warning. It's a, it's not just a punishment, it's also a warning right. that you cannot commit another one or you're off the pitch. This and is, yet some players and then a player, take it as like a license to go and to go and do more because it's like, well surely he doesn't he won't have the courage to send me well, off. That's exactly what officials that's, don't that's want, problem. Well, I know. don't want players to do. So, so from that perspective, well, well done Atkinson. Possibly slightly more likely to give it when they're close together as a way of <sighs> illustrating the point. Everyone in the press box said Leicester have to be so careful because after all the controversy over the penalty, the Vardy penalty in the first half, whether it was or wasn't, Atkinson was getting so much abuse from the Arsenal fans. I know they're a febrile bunch. I know that referees psychologically have to be strong. But it, he had about 55... You know, Arsenal doesn't get very noisy, but he had about 55,000 people screaming abuse at him as he walked down the uh, walked down the tunnel. And everyone was saying in the press box, interesting to see uh, if uh, any Leicester player either gives away a penalty or gets sent off in the second half. So... If I'm taking an inference from what you just said, you maybe think there might be a tiny bit of credence that Atkinson being human and not a machine, perhaps the reaction of the crowd and the environment, maybe even some doubts over the Vardy penalty might have prompted. Is that what you're, was oh, that what you're only, suggesting? Only he could tell you But are you that. suggesting it's a possibility? It is, of course it's a possibility. Okay. Absolutely, which is what Ranieri was suggesting afterwards. But only Atkinson, who, you know, he's a strong guy, he's used to be a policeman, he's, uh, I, mean, I don't Another know if you've ever met him. Another one used to be a cop? Yeah, no, we, we, do, we do, I know. That's why there's so much crime on the streets, they're all referees <laughs> I now. Right, I want, we want to give you a final word on this because... This is a brilliant destruction. We're <laughs> 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 kind of going all over the place. One thing that struck me was that the Simpson red was especially bad because if you looked at Leicester's squad and you look, obviously... So obviously, in Simpson's case, there was no natural alternative on the bench for him. He had to bring in Vasilevsky, who I love because the guy looks like an absolute beast. He looks like a character who's like escaped from a from a video game. But Marcin Vasilevsky is thirty five years old. He's obviously not a natural right back, and the prospect about of, of him having to, you know, to be out wide against the, the those fleet footed little Arsenal guys 
probably wasn't great. That really was a game changer. I'm not having a go with Vasilevsky. I thought he did all right until that stupid, stupid moment at the end. But, I mean, that is the kind of decision from Simpson that really had major knock-on effects, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that's always been the debate with Leicester, isn't it? That, you know, they do have this very kind of well-drilled, disciplined, organized first eleven. You throw in a, even one or two reserves, not necessarily for Mares or Vardy or, or Kante, but for players like Simpson who kind of go unnoticed, and it does it disrupts the balance. In general, I'm not convinced that losing that game is, is a massive disaster for Leicester. I think there's a there's a possibility that it will. It depends how they how they react psychologically. It might that that pain could easily feed them feed them for the rest of the season. They've got a relatively easy run in. Say easy. They've got a lighter run in than than they might have done. So how serious the ramifications are will only be, be known, I guess, in the next few weeks. Moving on to the other big game, Manchester City and Spurs. I want to ask at the start, do you think, and I'm assuming, and anybody can answer this if they answer it briefly and concisely, do you think that the, these players were affected by knowing the score of the Arsenal-Leicester game, and how? No. No. Because it would have, it would have it, whatever the score was at Arsenal-Leicester would have, would have had an impact on that game, wouldn't it? it? If it had been a draw, it would have been a great opportunity for both of them. If, if Leicester had won, then, then you know, the, the pressure would have been on both to, I guess, realise that Leicester were running the risk of sort of getting away. So it probably affected them, but no more than any other results might have done. Turning point, I don't think City played particularly well initially, but obviously the turning point was the Raheem Sterling penalty. I go back to this. Technology is one thing. I think additional assistant referees would have helped Clattenburg. Who knows what he saw? It looked like he was in a very good position. Additional ones? What, the lollipop men behind the goal? Yes. Do you like those? What, Platini's mates? They're not Platini's mates. They're Well, they're he, he, he well, not IFAB. mates, but I mean, he introduced them. Yeah, on the I've advice seen of them, I've, I've seen them ignore some spectacular okay. things. We take a step back on this ignore thing. I have like a standard response to this, okay? Shut up. But No. <laughs> they don't ignore. What makes you think they ignore? I, I, unless, unless, unless you have access, and I know your powers are great, Henry, so it is possible. Unless you have access to the audio communication between the AAR and the referee, there's no way that you can tell if they're ignoring things or if they've seen them and the referees overrule them. Because we do have access to them after the fact because it's been made available. Yeah. They're constantly communicating, right? Mm. Now, people think that they ignore them because they don't wave their arms or, or, or signal the way, the way a linesman might. But the reason they don't wave their arms and signal is because IFAB, the people who make the rules, don't allow them to. They say that it could influence the crowd or whatever. It's so stupid. So they just have to stand there. And that's why it looks as if they never, ever do anything. You like them, do you? You like the lollipop men? Yeah, I don't understand why you call them lollipop men. I mean, because they're, they hold a stick. I mean, the yeah. why aren't linesmen lollipop men, too? They hold a little stick with a flag, too. I mean, you know. So it was obviously a bad call. No, I mean, Pelic- well, come on, come on, come on. What, no, it what, was a good what, call. What would Clattenburg say if he was here? Let's think about it that way. I would hope that Clattenburg then saw the replay and says, oh, from my angle, I didn't see it properly. And if I had this one back, I would have made no, a No, I don't decision. think he would say that. I don't think Clattenburg would give a penalty if he thought he couldn't see what he, what he was seeing. He would only give a penalty if he saw something. Okay. And what he saw... Was, was the ball striking Sterling's arm? He saw the arm. ball striking uh, Sterling's body and Sterling reacting by pushing the ball out with his forearm, redirecting right. the ball. He doesn't have to be looking at the ball to know that the ball's there and he wants it not to right. go near the goal. That's what Clattenburg saw. He it's saw a, a player interpretation deliberately of of, in diverting the ball. Right. And, he saw, and, and in that moment of time, he judged that it didn't just ricochet off his body to his arm. He saw his arm move to right. make sure the ball went in okay. a different direction. All right. Did anybody else 
anybody else on this podcast see things the way Clattenburg saw them? No, there was an element of. Then why do you I, think? I why do you think? I wasn't. He made a mistake. Think, He's I think he made a mistake. I think you know. Look, no, the mistake has to be. Is a good referee. The mistake has yeah. to be based on something. Clattenburg is the best referee in this country, yeah. be, partly because of his personality. He can deal with big games. I just thought in that case. Could he be completely convinced that he saw it? Was there an element of sort of responding to other individuals, which is very unlike Clattenburg? So I just thought it was just one of those momentary mistakes, which I don't think is going to affect him in the, in the long run. He's still England's best referee. I, I, Rory, I'm not going to ask you about referees because you don't like talking about them, but I, I, want to, I thought there was a lot of negativity around around Manchester City in, in, in the last couple of weeks. Understandable, I think, because of the results. And when they fell behind this heartbreaking game, I, I kind of thought, all right, this is where they're going to fall apart. But they didn't. I thought they had a tremendous reaction. They got the equalizer. They, they hit the woodwork. Maybe they were lifted by Vincent Company. Did you expect that? And were you encouraged by that? And does it maybe suggest that City are still in this title race? I thought for the first 50 minutes, I thought City were actually the better team. The thing that's impressive about Spurs is that Spurs always look like they know exactly what they're doing. They're very, I think Nick Ames described them either at 3SPN or The Guardian as very lucid, and I think that's, that's a really good word for Spurs, that they, they, everything they do is very smooth. They sort of interchange position very cleverly in midfield and with Dyer slotting back into the back two. I, I, I love the way they played. Danny Rose yesterday was a magnificent beast of a player. It was the, perhaps the greatest display of... I'm not. I want to say being a left back, but it's not. He was more than a left back. He was, he was on another level to everybody else in, in on the pitch. It was extraordinary, and it was Danny Rose. The Spurs were really energetic, really industrious, really good. But City, I think, looked like the more the more dangerous team. That penalty obviously changes things. I don't think you can quite rule City out because they are capable with that squad of of going on a run in a lead, as Henry says, in which nobody has looked particularly consistent. But City, I think, over the last few months have taken 32 points. And in the same time period, Manchester United have taken 31, which doesn't suggest they're about to go on a run. I think the other thing with City that's important is they really miss Kevin De Bruyne. He seemed to score a lot of goals and create a lot of goals and get very little credit for it, De Bruyne. But he, in his absence, City do look on balance. They played silver wide yesterday. It doesn't work. I understand the theory of it, but it just doesn't work. Yaya was playing as a 10, didn't really do anything. Sterling kind of flitted in and out a bit. Uh, Aguero missed two very good chances, which is unlike him, obviously. I think it's now difficult for them to catch three teams who are ahead okay. of them in a season when they've been so inconsistent, even though those rivals have been inconsistent, is, is a massive ask. Alison, I need the final word. I hope you show some love to, to talented players. When Lamella came, people were like, whoa, what's the big deal with Lamella? You know, he's rubbish. And I mean, you know, and I thought, like, you know what? You're entitled to your opinion. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're not entitled to your facts. There are certain obvious things that Lamella and Erickson are hugely talented footballers who, Lamella especially, perhaps played, played poorly for a long while. And Erickson, too, sometimes flits in and out. But as a neutral, I think we know that you don't support either one of these teams. When you see skillful players doing skillful things, Lamella putting the ball through, threading the ball like that, through Otamendi's legs, and then Ericsson coolly finishing, that must have warmed your heart a little bit, right? Of course it did. It adds to the long, long list of things that Pochettino is very good at. Wait, wait, sorry. I I love Pochettino too, but we don't praise Pochettino. No, because you do, because anyone else in charge of Spurs would have shipped out. Uh, Lamella. The fans didn't like him. He was becoming a joke figure. But you, you, if you're a good manager, you know what the player has. You know that it's taking time for him to adjust. You know, in Pochettino's case, the player has the fitness levels and the, the good attitude you want and the skill you want from a player. And you give him time, you give him time, you play him just the right amount of games. You play him in the Europa League, you let him get his hat-tricks, you let him star in the in the difficult matches, and then slowly you ease him in to help dictate the, the more difficult ones. And I think that, in a way, the goal you've just nicely described, Gab, sums up why I think Spurs will just clinch the title. Briefly to Sunderland Manchester United. I say briefly because we've kind of played out United and Mourinho and Van Hal to death. But I want to give a little bit of love to Big Sam Allardyce because maybe I'm a sucker, but I'm buying into this. Their, their last three games, Liverpool, they get the draw. And no, you know what? Maybe it did have to do, had obviously had a lot to do with Mignolet. I thought it had nothing to do with the fans walking out. But they played really well against City. I don't think they deserve to lose against City. And I think going to do this against United, United who were supposedly on a bounce, I think Sam Allardyce will keep them up. Am I a fool? Of course you will. 100%. You're not a fool, Gab. 100%. Thank you. 100%. He could keep them up and you could still be a fool. This is true. This is a possibility. <laughs> this is a possibility. Other thing, we need to react to our, our, our friend and colleague, Duncan Castles, who... For those who still don't know, because I reference him about about 80% of the times I mention Mourinho, he's obviously very close to the Mourinho camp. He had a big story in the Sunday Times saying that United's dithering over appointing Mourinho means that they risk losing him. <laughs> okay, Rory's giggling. He's going to go to you in a second, Rory. But first, I need to. I, I wish I could. I wish I could transmit an audio form. Henry's expression right now because it speaks volumes. Henry. I do feel that this is like video technology. It's coming. <laughs> it's just a question of when. Mourinho will be there. Mourinho has made flirtatious looks, comments about Manchester United ever since he's been in this country, ever since he sort of started dancing down the touchline in whatever it was, 2004, when he was a porter. It will happen. You know, maybe but Manchester it's... United are being so slightly sort of restrained and they want to give Van Gaal the chance to do, you know, to finish the season, which, okay, it's clearly crumbling before everyone's eyes and he looks absolutely drained and almost looks like a it's well, it's sad what's happening there Rory how do you read this Duncan story is this relevant because obviously again we, we treat this because we're all it's grown well up sourced. here it's well sourced I think is the technical term for this is yeah. this Mendes or Mourinho saying you know what just give him a kick up the rear turn the screws a little bit um, make it seem as if I have plenty of other options when personally I don't think he does not not a the, not a comparable standard anyway. Is that what this is? I would say that the more noise Jose Mourinho's camp makes about him possibly not getting the United job or him possibly getting the United job, the less certain he is that he's going to get it. Spot on. All right. In our debate this week, we're talking European football. Alison and Henry have left the room. Uh, just now. But don't worry, they'll be back for quick hits. But Roy, I wanted to talk to you about your uh, Paris Saint-Germain column in the game today. 
obviously Paris Saint-Germain running away with the uh, with a French title and this idea that maybe they're not good for the French league. Uh, and, and that's sort of an idea you wrestle with in your column. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting subject. So there's, there's, there's two ways. I was with a, a chief executive of a Premier League club last week who said that there's basically two ways of looking at kind of a professional sports lead. So at one extreme, you have what, what he cited as, the, as the, the, kind of the, the French model almost, where you have one, one super club that is completely untouchable, that's, that's completely kind of unassailable in its position, and you have similar, similar kind of models in Germany and Spain as well. Obviously in Spain there's, there's two or arguably three. In Germany, you could maybe make the case that Dortmund push Bayern a, a lot more than any French club push, pushes PSG. Although having said that, and this is important, it is only this year that that's happened. PSG have won the title the last three seasons, but they have at least had a bit of competition throughout with Lyon and Marseille last year, Monaco the year before. Uh, so that's one extreme, is this kind of super club driving the lead forward. And at the other extreme is the NFL, where anyone can beat anyone, any, you know, any team can win the, win the championship in any given season, theoretically. The Premier League's always felt that it's kind of best to be somewhere in the middle, so you have these great clubs that draw fans, but a degree of competitive balance within it, uh, and obviously that's worked pretty well for the Premier League over the course of the last few years. He didn't say that one is better than the other or that one is right and one is wrong, but they are both possible ways of, of, of going forward. I'm inclined to think that what you need is a degree of competitive balance because you need that kind of unpredictability. But you also need those, those great teams, those great clubs, those dynasties that fans really identify with. And if you think about the Premier League, the history of the Premier League, it became incredibly popular when Manchester United were the dominant force. And, and there, was, there was this sense that Manchester United were going to win 99, not 99, 95% of their games. And it didn't stop anybody saying, oh, this is a bit boring. There is a middle ground to be had. The problem that French football has at the moment is that it's gone way too far to one extreme and that all of the other clubs are kind of complicit in it because not only does the Qatar Investment Authority own PSG, who obviously have all the best players and all the money, but Al Jazeera owns B in Sports, which has helped to drive up the value of French television rights. So teams like Marseille and, and Lyon and Lille and Monaco and Saint-Étienne, these teams who could theoretically challenge PSG, who should be unhappy that PSG are so dominant, also have to admit that kind of PSG being the rock stars, that's a quote from Frédéric Thierrier, who's the president of the equivalent of the French Premier League, that they, that they drive up TV audiences, they drive, they drive up attendances, they are what is bringing the eyes of the world onto France. And I think that's really dangerous, where you not only have a lack of competitive balance, but a reason for the teams who are suffering to be happy with the situation. Uh, I take your point. I think it, perhaps in, in this season it's been magnified by the fact that Many of us thought that Leon were really going to kick on because he did well last year with all those young players, and then they spent some 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 good money in the summer. And obviously, it's a historic team; it's a big team. Uh, but instead, Leon have basically been been hugely disappointing this season. Marseille obviously shot themselves in the foot, and Monaco. Well, there's some debate as to whether Monaco is actually a football club or not, or something else entirely. What's interesting though is is there's an argument though to be made to be made that golf was probably never as popular as when Tiger Woods was dominating and that maybe perhaps the, the peak or the recent peak for boxing was when Mike Tyson, recent as in like the last 40 years for boxing, was when Mike Tyson was dominating and, and beating everybody. And, and maybe that's what Paris Saint-Germain needs to do. I mean, a more egalitarian model in France, the risk is, because the numbers are a lot smaller, is that France turns into Belgium. I mean, I, I look at the fact that people, people find like, oh, look, we have this new TV deal, you know, look, it's so big. But it's, what, I think it's like half of Serie A. 700, 726 million euros 
across four seasons, I think. So it's it's not amazing by by certainly English or German standards or Italian standards. Or Italian or standards. But Italy has the second highest, second big somehow bizarrely. Italy has the second largest TV deal in the world. So there. It's, that's just there's an awful lot of football on Italian TVs, isn't it? It's, it if you look at the per game ratio, I know you, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but if you look at the per game ratio, the Italian rate must be terrible. But yeah, well, I think I think the point that you raise about golf is is the key in this whole thing. And I, if I was a better journalist, I'd have done the research that I needed to do. There are studies that have been done which suggest that what fans really like, what actually sort of draws people in, is the idea of greatness. That people are. Yeah, they find it alluring, the idea that they're watching something special. They don't actually mind the idea that, that Barcelona might go and win 6-1 every week. It doesn't, it doesn't stop them being interested. It doesn't stop them enjoying that. And Tiger Woods is a great example that that made golf incredibly popular when there was literally no doubt about who was the best golfer in the world. Same with boxing. If you look at, it's not just Tyson, but you look at Mayweather, someone like that, Pacquiao, that they're incredibly popular figures because they win. And I think there's an element of that with PSG, without a shadow of a doubt, that they, the players they have make people want to watch PSG. I, I just find it quite sad, I think, that there's this quote from Bernard Caiazzo, who is the, um, the co-president of Saint-Étienne, and obviously Saint-Étienne, along with Marseille, probably the, the two most historic teams in France. Um, I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Caiazzo says that, that PSG have become the tree that hides the forest, and I think that's right. And there, is a, there, there are benefits to that, without a shadow of a doubt. But the danger is that the tree gets so big that the forest dies. And that's, that's the risk that they are running. We need to, A, think about what the benchmarks are for success as we define it. You know, is it success on the pitch? Or is it just having a lot of people involved in football? Uh, whether as, I mean, from a fan's perspective, whether as people who watch on television and read about their teams, or whether it's people who, who, who go to games uh, and who feel like they're part of something. To me, that's more important than getting results on the pitch and, and how many uh, UEFA coefficient points your top teams get in, in European uh, competition. I mean, I think that's a really important vantage point that often gets overlooked. And I don't know how well Ligue 1 is doing in that, in that regard, whereas Germany, for example, the Bundesliga does extremely well in that regard. The other thing is, I think you also have to be respectful and cognizant of a country's footballing history. Um, what you said there about Saint-Étienne and Marseille, I think is very, very apt. But I think one of the reasons why, for example, England can afford to be so egalitarian and why certainly Italy should have been more egalitarian than it's been and, and is trying to be more egalitarian now is that these are countries where you have more historically big and historically successful teams. People take it as read that, you know, Manchester United are the biggest, the most famous, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at United's history, while they always had high attendances by virtue of being in, in you know, one of two clubs in England's second biggest city, they really only had two sort of periods of, of, of glory, right? The, 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 the Busby era and the, the Ferguson era. Uh, it's not like all their titles have come sort of, you know, neatly spread out a couple every few decades. That's very different from, for example, Spain. You know, that also uh, informs or affects how you can build a league. You, you, you could make a really kind of highfalutin parallel with, like, democracy or something, but... Oh, you please do, that, please do. You see, the theory is, isn't it, that it becomes predictable. And I have some sympathy for this. Thierry also said that, that there are still things that are interesting. There's the battle to avoid relegation. There's the battle to get into Europe. There are, there are things to play for that, in which the French League is very, very interesting, far more so than the Premier League traditionally has been in terms of, say, the top four. The top four has always been a closed shop. And the Premier the League top made eight, it. even more so. Well, the, the, the top eight, is, it's, it, it is different this season. And that, that in itself is potentially bad for business because 
if you can't guarantee, if you're Chelsea, Arsenal, City, Spurs, Liverpool, whoever, if you can't guarantee you're going to be in the Champions League, players will think twice about joining you. So that there, is, there is a balance to be struck in all things. The NFL model doesn't massively appeal to me. I've got to admit that kind of, you would rate, you would rate last year, so we're going to kind of put you at a disadvantage this year. I think that's, I can understand it, and it's admirable to an extent, but I'm not sure it would necessarily be the way that I'd want to, to have my sport. You want greatness. You want to watch a dynasty being established. I think the danger in France is that it might go too far, that it might just be a case of PSG swatting aside these teams whenever they want and then aiming for Europe. And the risk is you end up with a situation that could be similar to that that you had in Scotland where they weren't being challenged enough to remain kind of at their peak. Whether that's still true or not, I don't know, because what you have to remember is that, and as I'm sure you're, in fact, you've written on this before, that we are now in, di- in a different age of football. We are in the age of genuine super clubs who kind of transcend borders, to whom the lead is not the main target. Bayern Munich's target, they say, is to win the Bundesliga. But that's only because they know they're going to win the Bundesliga as long as they don't sort of melt into some sort of massive crisis. Same with Barcelona and Real Madrid. They, they want to get one, one over on each other in the league. But if you offered Barcelona no league title, the Champions League, and at least one win in a, in a Classico, I think they'd probably take it. And that there is a change in kind of environment in which football is being is being held, where these clubs are looking at other things rather than their domestic rather than their domestic trophy. Rory's column, of course, is in the game on Monday. Cheers, Rory. Right, how about some quick hits? Liverpool beat up poor old Aston Villa 6-0 at Villa Park and Sturridge gets on the score sheet. Henry, I find it very, very difficult to read or understand Liverpool right now. Did you learn anything from this game? And are Aston Villa officially down? It just reminded me what a fabulous manager Liverpool have in uh, Jurgen Klopp. Keep the faith in him. Daniel Sturridge, when he is fit, is a terrific player and Aston Villa an embarrassment. Wow. That's something you do agree with Stan Collymore on. Chelsea beat up Newcastle 5-1. It's obviously too little, too late. But, Rory, what will give them the greater chance for a bit of joy this season? The FA Cup, where they take on Manchester City next, I believe? Or the Champions League, where they have Paris Saint-Germain? Well, whether they get past PSG or not, uh, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting, finely balanced tie. Uh, But I suspect the better chance is the FA Cup, particularly given that I wouldn't expect Manchester City to have the strongest side out next Sunday because they have four very important fixtures in competitions that are more important to them in the 10 days that follow. Including the League Cup final, of course. Speaking of Newcastle, uh, that was really, really, really ugly. Alison, you were there. I'm getting the impression that Steve McLaren is a better person than he is at a football manager. He's good in that he comes out after... I've, I've seen him twice this season, both after 5-1 defeats, and he does answer the questions and he doesn't duck anything, he doesn't storm off. So he is a decent bloke in that sense. Uh, after the 5-1 against Crystal Palace, they came back and beat Liverpool and beat Spurs. So let's see what he does this time. It's not, it's not great if that's what you rely on, an absolute humiliation before you get any points on the board. Henry, I can't figure out Everton either. Sorry, I'm asking you for help on all on understanding all these Merseyside clubs, uh, just as they look as they might be going on a little mini run, they go and do something stupid like lose at home to West Bromwich Albion. Roberto Martinez even got booed by some people when he, with some of his substitutions. We've debated this before. Is he any good or is he a fraud as the unnamed manager George Colkin once cited in here suggested? Roberto Martinez is not a fraud. He's a very good attacking coach. He's very good with the media, but he needs to employ a top-of-the-range defensive coach to sort out his defence. A specific defensive coach? Absolutely. Why do we have him? You're, like, here, in your, you're here in your Philadelphia football top. I bet they've got coaches for every position at that. Didn't Kevin Keegan employ Mark Lawrenson to sort out his defence years ago? And you know all he did? 
He just he had to supply defenders for volleying practice. <laughs> yeah, maybe a different kind of defensive coach in this case. Uh, Rory, I'm assuming you're aware of what Lionel Messi did last night. Uh, Johan Cruyff did it successfully in the early 1980s. Some Belgian dude did it in 1959 or 57 for the first time, I believe. Robert Pires uh, attempted it less than a decade ago. Can you please offer some context? Yes, uh, Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez were having fun against El Vigo and winning get, winning football match 6-1, which is, their, which is something they are uh, accustomed to. Uh, so Messi, who was terrible at taking penalties, decided that the best way to, uh, to guarantee a goal was to pass it to Luis Suarez. To some people it's disrespectful. I think it's not. I think it's part of the... The, the wonderful sort of circus of football that you could potentially do that just as you might be able to take a Penenka. Celta Vigo have resp- responded very well. They say they're, um, they're more annoyed that they conceded, not the manner in which they conceded. Uh, and it's another sort of affirmation of the sense that Barcelona can kind of do what they like at any point. But it is interesting, the difference in interpretation uh, to what happened when Pires and Henri tried it and missed it to what happened when Messi and Suarez tried it and scored it. And whether that's because it was Arsenal and it's Barcelona, or whether it's just one went wide and one went in, I don't know. I think it might also be a bit different by the fact that it's been suggested it was also a tribute to, to Johan Cruyff, of course, is, uh, is quite unwell at this time. Uh, but by the way, that Barcelona performance, as good as anything you're likely to see that, that sort of, there was just 20 uh, Someone texted me last night and said it's the best half of football they've ever seen. I wasn't allowed to watch it. Norwich go 2-0 up at home to West Ham, but then throw two points away as the former World Cup winners back in 1966 uh, storm back to a 2-2 draw. Alison, I love Alex Neal. I really wanted to believe. Um, but I'm starting to think he's going to join Villa and Newcastle in the championship next year. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. If if Norwich had sort of given us a workman like nil-nil, we'd be saying, oh, there's a chance maybe. But there's something about getting the same number of points from 2-2 and having uh, led by two goals and then not, not seeing it out that makes them seem extra frail. And I think that, I think scoring... Four against Liverpool and not not even getting not even getting a draw, I think, has taken a huge toll on the team, and they need to forget that. But I don't think they'll. Um, I still don't think they'll uh, survive. And I also have a question for you, Gab. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Bit of a surprise, I know. But wow. There was a top of the table clash in Serie A on Saturday night. Uh, Juventus hosted Napoli. Do we have a new leader? Indeed we do, Alison. Uh, Juventus winning quite dramatically. Uh, 1-0, two minutes from time. Simone Zaza came on and um, with this incredible finish with a deflection from your old pal Raul Albiol past your other old pal Pepe Reina in the, uh, in the Napoli goal. Napoli had gone in with a two-point lead. Now they're one point back. Juventus 15 consecutive victories. I thought it was a, it was a tense and quite riveting affair. Napoli could have could have won it in the second half, especially since Juventus were without both Chiellini and Bonucci, who limped off after being injured by his own man, his own teammate, the large German Sami Khedira. But I think it shows that Juventus have that je ne sais quoi. Right, that's all we have time for today. Many, many thanks to my guest today, Rory K. Smith from his new home somewhere near Manchester, Alison Rudd and... Henry Winter, who kindly joined me both in the studio. Please press that subscription button. We'll be back next week. And remember, you can get exclusive football highlights free as part of your subscription. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial. Uh, You can just search the Times online for that. By the way, I get lots of feedback on who our 
favorite podcast guests are, and it's no coincidence that Rory and uh, Allison have been here all season long uh, because historically they've been among the favorite uh, guests. But if there's somebody you'd like to have on, and bear in mind some of these people are busy, but some of them aren't, please feel free to CC me and our producer Dave and uh, uh, and harass them via Twitter. I'll be happy to supply all the Twitter ham- handles because not everybody is as kind as Henry, who I believe you've come on what you managed to come on come on three times in the short while you've been with us. Yeah, well, I've forced That's... my way in because you know winners stay on, and Allison and Rory have just got two of the three seats. So well, not. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll always have room for you. We'll, we hope you'll come back. We hope, actually, one day to have you and Matthew Sion on at the same time so that maybe we can get round two of your, your, your fascinating uh, head-to-head on Five Live on Thursday. It was good. I thought it was a score draw. I may be biased. I think you actually won that one. Yeah, Henry, you did. <laughs> yeah, <I> did. Well, <laughs> penalties. <laughs> uh, anyway, till next time. Bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.